Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What is going on, everybody? John Middlecoff, Three and Out Podcast. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your uh, your earlobes, your AirPods, your speakers, however you listen. And uh, and yeah, excited. Got a little uh, good little show today. Good little show. Recording this on January twenty first, Thursday midday. Nothing, you know. There's no Thursday night football anymore. Uh, luckily, we got two big games. We will dive into the pressure rankings off the top coming into the AFC and NFC Championship game, which, honestly, I, don't, I haven't even looked at which game's first. I would assume. I don't even know. Uh, then we will get into uh, Phillip Rivers retired. The Colts now have an interesting situation. The Eagles hired a head coach that, to be completely candid, I didn't know that much about, uh, named Nick Sirianni. We'll dive into some thoughts there. The Pac-12 fired, I guess he hasn't officially been fired. He will be done here in a couple months. Larry Scott, who ruined the conference. He said something that I've known about for a while. I don't spend much time talking about. But basically, they didn't make football a priority. And we we will dive into that. And then, of course, Middlecoff Mailbag, at John Middlecoff, is the Instagram handle, 3 and Out Podcast. Go subscribe. Greatly appreciate it. So I wanted to start with this. The two biggest games of the season. We got three games left, which sucks, but at least they're three really good games, right? We know for a fact these two games are awesome on paper. Brady versus Rodgers, the Bills versus the Chiefs with the two young star quarterbacks, one of the best young star quarterbacks we've ever seen. Regardless who wins this weekend, we have a fantastic Super Bowl. I I think, you know... You probably, you know, the league wouldn't mind Mahomes winning and then they can't lose with Rodgers or Brady. 
But the way I looked at this is I did a little bit of a pressure ranking. And I just ranked one through four, the team slash the quarterback, who has the most pressure going into this weekend. And number one, I don't even think it's relatively close. I think it's the Green Bay Packers, but specifically Aaron Rodgers. As I uh, I paralleled on earlier in the week, I would equate Aaron Rodgers right now to Tiger Woods. He is the perfect quarterback. He already was one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the league. He'd won multiple MVPs. I think most of us that have watched the game for 20, 30 years, I'll acknowledge he's one of the most talented players we've ever seen. And I think this year was his best season ever. Just based on he was completely dominant. He was unstoppable. They had the number one seed. They're hosting the NFC Championship game. And while because of Corona they can't have a full house, they are allowed fans now, and they get a big home field advantage in Lambeau. And as we talked about earlier this week as well, they've never hosted the NFC Championship game. Right? They won in Chicago. They lost in Atlanta. They lost in San Francisco. And they lost in Seattle. Now they get to host it in Lambeau. So he's the number one seed. He's the MVP of the league. He's been the best player in the NFL this year. I think it's fair to say the last decade probably hasn't been many seasons where he's not a top two or three quarterback in the NFL. And he played in a generation with Brady and Manning. And several of those years, you could argue he was the best quarterback in the league. Hell, he won the MVP twice. This will be his third year. So he's a transcendent talent, a transcendent player on a historic team. And this is his opportunity. Because when I think Aaron Rodgers, I always said this about Peyton Manning, even though he was so, it wasn't his fault, his body just gave up on him, he was a two Super Bowl quarterback. You know, he deserved to have that second ring. His career was too good to only be like, yeah, he only won one ring. He was too good. Like Elway. Elway went to five, won two, felt right. It's a shitty part about Marino. Like, he was a Super Bowl caliber player, right? But never had the chance to win him. Peyton Manning deserved to have that second ring. He, the way I think about Pat, Peyton Manning is the way I think about John Elway. Champion, all-time great, won multiple rings. He'll never be Montana or, you know, or Brady, but I think Aaron Rodgers who's 37 years old, in the peak of his powers, looks to have several good years ahead of him. So he doesn't have to, if he doesn't win it this year, it's not the end of the world. And I think going to Super Bowls matters. Right? Like, going to Super Bowls, even if you don't win them as your legacy, Tom Brady went to nine of them. Won six. It's okay to lose some, as long as you go to them. Rodgers only been to one, which is pretty nuts. He's too good of a quarterback to only have been to one Super Bowl. He's a favorite at home. By far the most amount of pressure is on Aaron Rodgers. Now, and I feel good. I'm going to pick the Green Bay Packers. I put $400 on them to win the Super Bowl, which pays 2-1. to one. Uh, Second, I'm going to go with the Chiefs. Now, they're playing with some house money, right? They're the defending champs. But this is their third straight year of hosting the AFC Championship. And if I told you your favorite team would host the NFC or AFC Championship game, depending on what conference they were in, three straight years, you would have a quarterback who would be, you know, an MVP-type player for three straight years. You'd have one of the best coaches in the uh, 
you know, in the league during that period of time, what would be success or failure? And you'd be like, minimum, a Super Bowl ring and at least another berth, right? So if the Chiefs can look back at this three-year run and go, we lost to the Patriots in the AFC Championship game, we won a Super Bowl, and we got back to another. Because to me, if they lose to Brady or they were to lose to Rodgers, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But I think they, they need to get to another Super Bowl. They have too much talent. They've been the best team in the league for the last basically three years. And they're playing at home. And like the Packers, they're the favorites. Now, the pressure on them to win it once we get to the Super Bowl, I would probably put Rodgers ahead of them, Brady below them. But in terms of this weekend, they got the most pressure because that's what happens when you're the one seed and you're the defending champs. Three, I would put the Bills. And the Bills, I'm going to put them under this because of Josh Allen. Josh Allen has not been paid yet. And they've been open about how they're going to extend Josh Allen this offseason as they should. He looks like a transcendent player. And unless the Texans hire Brian Dayball, you would think that Brian Dayball is going to be back another year. So you'd have a really good chance to have another great offense. But anytime that you pay the quarterback, your whole life as an NFL GM and as an NFL head coach gets a little more complicated. And the Bills right now are easily, I'd say beside the Packers, the hottest team in the league. Now, the, the Chiefs had won, right? They won all those games to end the season. They won their first playoff game. But Mahomes got hurt, and at the end of the season, they weren't really that on. And the Bills can go, well, we played the Chiefs. While we got our ass kicked, I do think we feel pretty comfortable playing them again. Now, I, I don't know, necessarily know if that's true or not and how it will play out. I'm going to lean taking the Chiefs in this game, but I do think the Bills are a uh, valiant foe. And the pressure on them just to make a run before you pay your quarterback. Because what we're always told is the greatest attribute these rookie quarterbacks have is their contract. They are, you know, the the cost is controlled. Even if it's a top 10 pick, it's at a cheap number. There's a major difference between $7 million a year and 35. So you have to take advantage of this situation because there is a roster building element that just naturally becomes a little more complicated. You have to get rid of some of the depth that makes you a really good team. And the Bills these last couple years have been a really good team. And they're right there with a chance to win with a quarterback playing outside in the cold in the weather. Has a big arm. It should translate pretty well. They're a cold weather team. Shouldn't be affected by the weather. And last but not least would be the Bucs. I don't think the Bucs have much pressure on them this weekend. They hadn't made the playoffs in over a decade. They've just got two wins this year. They signed Tom Brady. Their team became nationally relevant. Uh, I understand that this is a short-term thing with Tom, but, like, it was already a success. You know? I, it, you won. And I know they wouldn't want to hear that. Their plan to sign Tom Brady was to win the Super Bowl. But, like, the season was already very successful. You knocked out your division rival, the Saints. You are the, the only team standing with the, with the Packers. Like, you won. You signed Brady, and it worked out. You listen to him, you signed Antonio Brown, it also worked out. So when I go in my pressure rankings, I think by far this weekend, Rodgers has an immense amount of pressure on him, which I expect him to ball out and win the game. Best player in the National Football League. I, and then when you just look at the Chiefs, like they're on this special little run. And right now is when you take advantage of it. 
Because you go, well, you got Patrick Mahomes the next decade. You just never know. Players come in and out. Kelsey one day gets old or gets hurt. Same with Tyreek Hill. You have this great opportunity. You got to strike where the iron's hot. And that's where I'd even put the second tier. The Bills, like, it'd be nice, but even they've kind of already won, right? If they get to the Super Bowl, it'd be pretty awesome, but it's pretty happy times in uh, Bills Mafia. In Tampa, and really with Tom, you've been to nine Super Bowls, you've won six, you already resurrected the Bucks. You just don't have that much pressure on you. Okay, let's dive into the Indianapolis Colts. And we've talked at nauseum over and over and over about the importance of a quarterback. It's not hyperbole. It's not overhyped. It's a reality. If you don't have a good coach and you don't have a good quarterback, don't even waste your time. You have no shot to have any success in the NFL. Chris Ballard, who I would say before he got the Colts GM, had a ton of hype to be the next great NFL general manager. And he has done everything humanly possible to live up to that hype. Everyone in the league respects him. I think the media people respect them. Football people respect them. Fans go, God, this guy builds a really good team. He does a really, really good job. And it's been impressive. And to no fault of his own, he's had a couple things out of his control, throw huge curveballs in his career, right? Josh McDaniels backed out of a coaching job. That happened. And he pivoted as well as humanly possible and hired a high-level coach that he's won some games with in Frank Reich. It made the playoffs. Last year, they were competitive in a situation when their quarterback retired. Andrew Luck literally told them, guys, I'm out. And they have a, they had and have a Super Bowl-level roster. Their problem is they don't have a quarterback. Look at John Schneider, who it's, it's always hard with Seattle, who's really pulling the trigger. Right? Is it Pete? Is it John? The one thing we know for fact is that John put all his chips in the middle of the table for Russell Wilson. Pete Carroll first met Russell, and he thought, John, this guy's way too short. They started watching Tate. They started being around him. They fell in love. They eventually drafted in the third round. The first iteration of the team was loaded. They nailed other draft picks. They went to multiple Super Bowls, and they won one. It was awesome. Then, the last five years, as Russell's become a superstar, John Schneider hasn't drafted that well. And you know what? It hasn't mattered because he has an elite quarterback. So what happens every year? They win, they compete to win the division, and they go to the playoffs. Their roster is very, very flawed relative to the Colts. Yet the Colts right now have the biggest question mark you can possibly have because Phillip Rivers who in a weird way, and I'll get to him in a second, did them a favor. Because if Philip Rivers said, I want to come back, they would have taken him back. Because they know for a fact that they can make it to the playoffs, they can compete to win the division with Philip, even though in a weird way, it's not an ideal situation because you know you can't win the Super Bowl. But there's nothing wrong with, you know, a first or second round exit, winning 11 games, and having a good team. So I would not have blamed them if Rivers had not retired and they would have brought him back. But Rivers kind of did them a solid. Rivers did to the Colts what I think Steeler fans wish Big Ben would do to them. Like, guys, I'm out. And just give us clarity. Not to be like, can we, can we compete with this 38, 39-year-old? No. Maybe we can, maybe we can't, but it's just much easier when the guy goes away. 
because it it forces your organization to get bold, to make a decision at the most important position on the team. Instead of just holding on to this Band-Aid, which is an older, aging, Pro Bowl-level player. It's a tough situation to be in. And I've talked about this before. Their team right now, their best option is not to trade for Matt Stafford in their first-round pick. And one, if the 49ers put pick 12 on the table, Colts won't get him. Their best option is to not get Sam Darnold. We don't even know if Sam Darnold's good. I, I lean to think he can be a good starting quarterback, but I don't think it's a guarantee. When you draft in the 20s, we've seen it before, you can get up to like 10 or 12, like the Texans and the Chiefs did with Watson and Mahomes, but you got to trade multiple first-round picks. And here's the other kicker. You need those guys to drop. Well, this year, we know there are going to be countless teams in the top 10. The Jags, potentially the Jets, the Dolphins situation, uh, Carolina, Atlanta, that could just pick up quarterbacks. And then all of a sudden, even if you were primed to go from pick 23 to pick 11, the guy you want could be picked. It is out of your control. For as awesome as the moves were to trade up for Watson and Mahomes, every guy in both organizations would tell you, going into that draft, we were hoping and praying. And, and Veach and those guys with the Chiefs have gone on record to say, the agent worked with us and told us who liked them and who didn't. They're just basing it on other people's information, which is all you can do. But what if the agent hadn't been told and Mahomes would have gone pick seven, eight, or nine? All of a sudden, that great plan wouldn't have worked. Part of having a plan, things that you can't control have to go your way. It is very, very risky. I said it before earlier in the season. What I would do, and I would have done this all all season, what I would do right now if I was Chris Ballard is I would spend several hours a week, I would fly to Andrew Luck's house, and I would do the equivalent of begging him to come back. I would do everything humanly possible to try to convince Andrew Luck to be my quarterback. Because there is not a better option on the table, including Matt Stafford, clearly Sam Darnold, Jameis Winston, any of these draft players not named Trevor Lawrence, who would be a better, you know, quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts than Andrew Luck. He's taken two years off, assuming he got healthy. I go, Andrew, what was your big beef when you retired? I was so beaten up. I was tired of rehabbing. Why were you so beaten up? Because, you know, my teams weren't that good. The, the, the GM did a bad job. My coaching was awful. It was a disaster. And I got the crap kicked out of me. I'd go, Andrew, what I have developed here and built here is the complete opposite of that. I got a high-level coach who's an offensive guy. I got a high-level offensive line. I got a star young running back. I got multiple offensive weapons. And we'll draft more. And it's the best of both worlds. I don't have to waste a pick on a quarterback. I already got the guy's rights. Boom, he just comes back, you know, on the books. Now, I'm not saying that Andrew Luck will do it. I don't know. I don't know Andrew Luck. He's clearly a different individual. But I think everyone, if Andrew Luck truly loved football, and I think it's fair to say at one point in time in his professional playing life, he truly loved playing football. He has to miss it a little bit. And he has to wonder, what would I have been like on a really talented team. Because I saw him take teams that were average as the day is long. 
awful to win playoff games. I saw him with a coach. Chuck Pagano's not a good coach. Nice guy. Not a good coach. Definitely knows nothing about offense. And they were winning playoff games. So no matter what I do, if I was Ballard, my first, second, and third options would be to convince Andrew Luck to come back. And this is where I think the Colts kept paying him. Uh, they, they didn't do that randomly. They didn't do that out of the goodness of their heart. Business is cold-blooded. And they did it with the hope that one day the guy would come back. That would be my move. That would be where I'd put all my chips in the middle of the table. And I'd make him say no about 25 times. He could say no and I'm coming back the next day or the next week. It would be a relentless pursuit these next couple of months. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not keeping an eye on my other options, but you can't convince me there's a better option. And then to Philip Rivers, who retired. I texted a buddy who I've known. Uh, you know, he, he's played in the league for the last decade. He's in the league right now. And he played with Philip Rivers for three or four years. And I just, I sent him a text and I said, what are your thoughts on Phillip Rivers, right? Do you have any good stories? And his response was, my favorite teammate I've ever played with. Not close. Phillip Rivers was beloved by the people around him. Was Phillip Rivers' career, you know, flawed? Of course it was, right? He didn't have as much playoff success, I think, as his stats would show. But he played for the Chargers, who have a notoriously cheap owner, who were constantly turning over average coaches because they wanted to go cheap. The thing I respect most about Rivers, and I think it's a dying breed of guys when it comes to professional sports, he never got involved in football for the money, for the fame, to become some brand. He did it because he loved playing football. Because he loved competing. And I think the league is better when more guys like that are involved. And right now it does feel like there are a lot of young guys like Josh Allen and Mahomes and even Watson. You feel it. But you, the more and more we lose guys like Rivers, we lose guys like Drew Brees, you do lose a fabric of the league. I saw some numbers this week that the, that the Tom Brady-Drew Brees game got 37 million people to watch. I think it was like 8 or 9 million more than watched the Packer game. And Drew Brees is a star. Tom Brady is a superstar. Brees is gone. Tom Brady is the most famous guy in the league. I mean, he's got a couple years left max. He's 43 years old. You're losing rivers. There is a lot of pressure on these young players to have long careers, to play well for a long period of time to become stalwarts at their position. Because the league, like Roethlisberger's maybe got a year left. Rivers is gone. Breeze is gone. Brady's coming down the home stretch. Manning's gone. And it was a group of guys that you just felt like, listen, they all had their issues. They all had their flaws. But if you were betting against them, if you were a fan of, on the other team, I don't know how you didn't respect them. You know how much just it, it felt like Phillip Rivers loved playing football. And he was a guy, if you look at his career, went through some ups and downs, right? He, he was the guy that Wally pipped. I don't know if that's the correct word here, but Drew Brees and became the quarterback. Then in like the early 2010, 11, 12, kind of went through a rough stretch where he had a really, really down year and threw a bunch of picks. And it, it was really ugly. Then he kind of resurrected his career uh, with McCoy 
And even with a couple years, Anthony Lynn made the playoffs, was playing a lot better. I don't think people quite can comprehend what a shit show the Chargers are and just consistently under that ownership. I'm looking for the year. So in 2000, 2011, he threw 20 interceptions. And then he bounced back the next year. He had a real rough stretch for a couple years. 27 and 20, 26 and 15. And then in 2013, he threw 32 and 11. Then he had another rough year in 2016 where he threw 33 touchdowns but 21 picks. And one thing he talked about when he was leaving the Chargers was just like he never was consumed with the stats. And he threw some bad picks. And I think one of the reasons he threw some bad picks, he threw a pickable ball. He did not have a great arm. So he had to take chances that other guys just don't because his entire game was based on accuracy. It's hard to be consistently accurate. But I, I know this. For a guy that I feel laid it all on the line, that never did it for the wrong reasons, that never won a Super Bowl, and you know I think he's going to be a controversial guy and polarizing individual when it comes to the Hall of Fame, I, I couldn't respect the guy anymore. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's dive into a little curveball that was thrown. Think Barry Zito with the A's. Think Kershaw like five years ago. 12 to 6. You don't see it coming. Swing and a miss. You have no chance. That was the Eagles today. Hiring Nick Sariani as their head coach. And I was going to be like, I'll be completely honest. I'm always honest. I mean, I'm just, I'd say what I think. But I had never heard of this guy. That would be strong. I had known of him because when Rivers was going to the Colts, one of the big reasons was, obviously, Frank Reich, who was with him in in San Diego, but Nick Sirianni, who was his quarterback coach and someone that Rivers liked a lot. Rivers thought highly of him. But the moment Doug was fired, I don't even know. I I didn't know who the Eagles were going to hire, to be honest with you. I thought Josh McDaniels because it was leaked, but then... I know a lot of people within the Eagles organization, like Jeffrey Lurie's not a big Patriot guy. I think he's friends with Robert Kraft or whatever, but they once beat him in the Super Bowl. He just, he doesn't like the Patriots. So, but Josh, pretty good candidate, I guess in theory, but would Josh have accepted the job and, you know, listen to Howie? I don't know. So Nick Sirianni, the Eagles hang their hat on being innovative, being ahead of the curve. I know this, when I worked for the Eagles, This was, you know, when I first got hired in 2010, the staff was littered with people under 30 years old. And these guys now are, have major roles all over their league, you know, in the, in their thirties. So they, you know, have this forward thinking ability of getting young people. It's something they take a lot of pride in. Now it's one thing to have a scout or an assistant coach do that. It's another to name your head coach. But once upon a time, when they named Andy Reid the head coach of the Eagles back in, what, 99, he was kind of a no-name, under-the-radar guy. Now, he was coming from a franchise called the Green Bay Packers who was kicking everyone's ass with Brett Favre. But I understand getting a guy that's young that you think has a big upside. He's coached in the league for a while, even though despite being 39, he's been in the league since 09, been with the Chiefs, been with the Chargers, and then been with the Colts. Here's the issue. It is a town that is not easy to deal with. The Eagles mean everything. The media is coming after you. Uh, it, it is just an intense place to be a head football coach. You are an immediately a celebrity that's under the microscope. It has a lot of parallels to the SEC. It has, like how he told me at the Combine, a guy he's become good friends with is Brian Cashman. Because he's like, you know, you can kind of relate to the pressures. Obviously, the Yankees are bigger than the Eagles, but you're just under the firing line. Everything you do is under the microscope. It is an intense fucking job. 
I was a nobody in the organization as a scout, and I felt it every day coming in there. Just because of the of the passion and the importance to the city. And the city is a major city in America. A lot of people live there. And Philly is just a big sports area and just PA in general. And the Eagles mean a lot. And this guy's getting his first opportunity. Like it's a bold move. But one thing that having been around Howie and definitely just the organizational culture, like they promote being bold. They will take big swings. Now, I'm not saying necessarily this was a big swing. Who else was hiring him? Maybe nobody. I don't know anything about the guy. Text a couple people, one that had worked with the Chargers, another guy that had played with the Chargers. They both loved the guy. They both were really impressed. Now, I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all. These, uh, it doesn't, I, I've said glowing reviews about people that go the wrong way. We don't know. And, and you never know until a guy gets in this position. But I understand the Eagles' mindset of they had to go offense. They have a hundred-plus million-dollar problem in Carson Wentz. Now, where this job is very difficult for a first-time head coach, the Eagles have a Carson Wentz problem. They have a Carson Wentz problem with his play, which is terrible. He's not a good quarterback. You could argue at different stretches of 2020, he was the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. I'm not including backups, Nick Mullins and dudes that were starting for the Cowboys and some of the random guys throughout the league. I'm talking about the 32 starting quarterbacks that begin the year as your starting quarterback going into the season. Wentz, I don't know where he ranks in PFF or some of the stats. The eye test, he easily could have been last. So the guy is playing bad. Then you have a diva problem. There is clearly some stuff there with his teammates, with work ethic, with his some entitlement. It's it's not even disputable now. And I think a young coach can fix ability, right? This guy, trying to look, was he a quarterback in college? This guy played college football. He, I don't know if he did. He was a defensive back. I don't know what position he played in college, but he went to Southwest Central, so who even cares? But this guy has coached quarterbacks now since 09. Quarterbacks with the Chiefs, quarterbacks with the Chargers, and quarterbacks and offensive coordinator with the Colts. So this guy has been around quarterbacks, understand quarterbacks, and he's been around, spent a lot of time around Rivers. High-level guy. So I will give him the benefit of the doubt that he that he's going to have the ability to take a legit swing on fixing the player. But the personality is not easy. Because even though you're now the head coach, Carson Wentz has infinitely more money than you. And his job status is you can make it an open competition or whatever. He's already leaked. He wanted out. So he won't be afraid to do that again. You're going to have to approach this at like the ultimate balance. Because you have this guy who knows he's talented, but he's not playing well, but he blames others, where you want to broach it where you're going to have to be a hard ass. You're going to have to have some Purcells, Bill Purcells, where you're just on this guy, but he's an offensive player. He's not a defensive lineman. And the reality is with offensive players, you can't just dog cuss him 24-7. Ask John Gruden. He's been doing it for 20 years. His teams always crumble down the stretch. So yeah, you got to be, there's a kid glove element to it, which ultimately my point here, it's a very challenging thing to do. Talk with these guys that make $30 million that are playing bad and you have to earn his trust, but you also have to coach him hard. But here's what I will say about Nick Sirianni and just the ultimate uh, big picture of the Eagles job. And I think a lot of people went, well, Eagles is a terrible job. 
Is it? Because you do have a big-time talent in Carson Wentz. And as a coach, if I take over the Houston Texans, and listen, here for all the bullshit about the Deshaun Watson uh, status and trade, they do not have a head coach. So until they get a head coach, like for as much smoke as out there, and there's a lot, and usually where there's a lot of smoke, there's some fire, clearly there's something there, but let's just see who the head coach is. And then we can dive into, is this going to work or not? But until I know they have a head coach, I don't know the situation. But if I, if John Middlecoff was assistant coach for the uh, Green Bay Packers and the Houston Texans hired me to be their coach, and let's say I was able to convince Deshaun, listen, I will, uh, we're going to win here. You're going to like me. You're going to be good. You're going to be a Houston legend. Stay. And he listened. I'm not really getting that much credit for Deshaun Watson. He won national championship. He was making Pro Bowls before he ever showed up. Where Carson Wentz, as a coach, you get a lot of credit for saving a guy's career. Can you resurrect it? Can you get, you know, just the wheels back on the car? Because right now, the car has four flat tires, and you're on the side of the road, and you got a long way to go to your destination. So the Eagles, you can talk about all this Jalen Hurts crap you want. Me, personally, I'm trading Jalen Hurts this offseason. Because I don't think that Jalen Hurts and Carson Wentz can exist in the same quarterback room. That's not possible. And my number one goal, if I'm Sirianni, is I want to fix Carson Wentz. And that's just the ego of a coach, and it should be. But if you're actually, you're able to pull that off, and you're able to come through on you know your ability to fix this player, you're going to get a lot of credit for it. Think how fast Nick Sirianni's stock would go up if in a couple years, Carson Wentz is playing at a Pro Bowl level again. Which, what we saw this year is a long way to go. And there's going to be pressure on him and Howie to be on the same page. There's going to be pressure on this first-time head coach to hire a good staff. There's going to be pressure on him to get experience around him on his staff. There's going to be, this is not an easy position. But it is a high upside position. And I, I thought the job was getting talked about much more poorly than it actually is. So I, I I understand where Eagles fans go, what the hell? But like, who, you know, were you going to hire Josh McDaniels? And well, Josh McDaniels even wanted the job, right? I mean, because Jeffrey's not firing Howie. That's not happening. And I, I just, I don't know if Josh was going to, I don't know about their relationship. It actually, everyone acts like, here, here's what I do know, having just known Howie for a long time. Howie has a lot of good relationships with a lot of people in the league. And he, like, I don't think him and Doug's relationship is bad. Like, Doug Peterson got fired because of Carson Wentz, not because of Howie Roseman. And I know everyone is just reading some of these things, like, Howie's the problem, Howie's the problem. The problem with the Eagles was Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz. And I've gone on to say, I'm, I'm even defending Doug Peterson. Part of that is Carson Wentz's fault. Like, that's on Carson Wentz. So, ultimately, the coach is going to get blamed, like, firing Howie. Let's say they had fired Howie, kept Carson and Doug. What would that have changed? The quarterback literally leaked to the number one reporter in America when it comes to the NFL. I, if Doug stays, I got to go. Our relationship is done. Like, that happened. Once that happened, what was Jeffrey Lurie supposed to do? It's not fixable. Now, you could argue, have they pampered him? It sure sounds like that. They gave him a ton of money. Howie was obviously behind part of that. But I understood when they gave him a lot of money. The problem is Carson just sucked. Him and the coach didn't see eye to eye. And then he hated the coach. Clearly, the coach didn't like him that much. Like, they had a coach-quarterback problem. 
And now they still might have a quarterback problem, but hopefully this young coach can fix the quarterback. Only time will tell. But if he does fix the quarterback, Nick Sirianni will go from a guy none of us knew to a pretty famous coach quick. You know, it, it hasn't been easy these last couple years, and really the last, I don't know, feels like decade, being a West Coast college football fan. I'm a Pac-12 guy at heart. Grew up in California, grew up going to Cal games, cousin played at UCLA, loved Pete Carroll, worked at Fresno State, was jealous of all this, you know, the guys Oregon and, you know, some of Utah would be able to recruit that Washington that we couldn't. I've just been around the Pac-12 my entire life. Uh, Couldn't get into any of those schools that were in my state, in Cal, UCLA, Stanford, USC. Denied by three out of the four of them. Stanford, of course, UCLA, Cal, said no thanks, didn't even apply to USC. Schools like Arizona and Oregon would have gladly taken me. The problem was, wasn't going to pay out-of-state tuition. But I consider myself a Pac-12 fan. And... The Pac-12 has had Larry Scott as the commissioner, the highest paid commissioner of all the Power 5 programs over this period of time, and they have become a disaster. Football and basketball, but mainly football, but basketball definitely helps, carry a conference. You've heard of the, uh, the term, a rising tide lifts all boats. It is true. Like CBS, for example. Do you know their number one product in terms of sports by a mile is, of course, the NFL. And they pay the most for the NFL, right, than they do when it comes to the NCAA tournament, the PGA Tour, whatever. But they know having the NFL, making a lot of money off the NFL, makes it easier for them to work with golf, work with tennis, work with college basketball, and do a good job with those products, right? And invest a lot of money because of the money they make with football. I see it right now. You are listening to me. Because, in some way, probably, of Colin Coward. If it wasn't for Colin Coward, you would never have heard of me. He literally lifted me to you. He is the cash cow. And in college athletics, the cash cow is the sport of football. And Larry Scott, who was, you know, unofficially fired this week, but he'll, like, keep his job through the summer, he admitted something that I've known of for a long time. That when we started the Pac-12 network, our goal was to push a lot of the Olympic sports. And as someone on the West Coast who has a lot of admiration for the Big Ten and the SEC and Clemson, I always thought to myself, like, why are you spending so much effort on swimming and water polo and women's basketball? Go all in on the sport of football and all those sports will benefit. And your men's golf team, your men's soccer team, your women's basketball team, your women's soccer team will indirectly benefit greatly from the money you are making by placing football on a pedestal. But Larry Scott is an Ivy League educated tennis player who came into the West Coast and the Pac-12 network with this mindset. And it might not be all his fault. Maybe the school presidents thought this as well. And if they did, they are morons. They are absolute imbeciles. And they don't understand the way this business works. Because you know what the SEC and the Big Ten did? They put every single chip they had in the middle of the table on the sport of football. And they said, if this works out with their networks and the SEC network and the Big Ten network and everything, if we have teams consistently going to the Final Four and pushing these teams and generating more money, 
our entire conference will be better. Our All of our Olympic sports will benefit. But without the sport of football succeeding, it's irrelevant what happens to our Olympic sports. And I think Larry Scott, now listen, there is a rabid fan base on the West Coast that can't ever compare. Like, just a simple reality, we're more pro sports driven out here. So I don't ever expect the Pac-12 to be the SEC. The SEC's teams are followed like the Niners or the Seattle Seahawks or the Lakers or our pro sports teams out here. No one will ever care as much about UCLA football as they do the Dodgers. Just like no baseball team will ever sniff the importance of LSU or Florida football. So there are uphill battles that you have to face out here. That's a reality. We know that. But I've seen it. When Pete Carroll went all in, when Jim Harbaugh went all in, when Chip Kelly went all in, it can change the conference. When football is rolling, everyone benefits. As Colin Coward gets more people to subscribe to his podcast, more people are going to listen to me. I am nothing without him. You think the CBS pays all this money for the PGA Tour if they're not making a ton of money off the NFL? and made a ton of money the last decade off SEC football, they wouldn't have it. It wouldn't make any sense. And I, I think sometimes, like, the do you know the NBA subsidized the WNBA its entire existence? The WNBA does not make any money. But because the NBA, well, I don't know right now, but, you know, forever, when David Stern was running, was making huge cash. And it was smart, and it is good for the sport to have a women's product. And they finance it. No different college athletics, right? The women's soccer team, the lacrosse team, men's golf team. These All these programs lose money. They don't make any money. They generate no revenue. Yet everything they have is an expense, right? Travel expense, coaching expense, food expense, you name it. But it doesn't, you think at Alabama they care how much money their golf team spends? Of course not. Nick Saban's racking in the cash. You know how much money Ed Ogeron made LSU last year? How much money Urban Meyer and Ryan Day have made that program? How much money Michigan State made when they were winning, you know, three or four years? I'm talking about football. Obviously, in basketball, I make a lot, too. There are two revenue-generating teams. Football, clearly. Even John Calipari said it a couple years ago. He's like, when football's good, I benefit. This is at Kentucky. John Calipari said that it's important for Stoops and the Kentucky football team to win and how awesome it was for them to win 11 games a couple years ago, how good it was for the program. And when I saw Larry Scott, again, saying something that I already knew, but I don't think a lot of people understand it because most of you don't have the Pac-12 network, let alone watch it if you have it. They push all these sports that no one wants to watch. And listen, my unborn children, if they are going to play college athletics, more than likely will play one of water polo, golf, one of those sports. They ain't going to play right tackle at SC. My children will not play Division I football. I feel pretty confident about saying that. So I'm not trying to act like some football elitist. Just a reality. Anyone with a brain knows, should have said, what the fuck are we doing? Can we place football as a priority? And I think the Pac-12s fall from grace and basically uh, road to irrelevancy, and you could argue they are close to irrelevancy right now, is because of this mindset where the SEC's rise to prominence, now Saban's played a big role in that, but their rise to prominence prominence has been their aggressive nature when it comes to the sport of football. 
Because when football succeeds, what do I look around and see? God, Florida's basketball team's so good. South Carolina's basketball team's in the Final Four. Tennessee's basketball team is good. Obviously, they got Kentucky. You know that the standard is just raised. You have more money. Georgia pays Tom Crean four or five million dollars a year because of football. And the Pac-12 should be ashamed of themselves. They need a complete, a complete, just reset, blow it up, and get some football people involved. Get some business people involved. Because you know what business people understand? The money. And I feel these academic elites out here on the West Coast didn't understand where the money came from. They understood money was there, but they just thought, oh, because if you're some academic elite that doesn't know football, you're like, oh, water polo, football, it's all the same. Because that's what they prioritized. You say, John, how's that possible? How could the school president of said university think that? Well, they clearly were allowing this to go on. So I, I, I'd argue, how could they not have thought it? But at least the Pac-12 now, we'll see who they hire, has a fighting and a puncher's chance just to get back to some relevancy. Now, there are going to be some uphill battles, like I said, that they will not have advantages built in like some of the other conferences. But I've seen it in my life. They shouldn't be this terrible. They shouldn't be this bad. The conference should be better. But it starts with prioritizing the sport of football. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's dive into the Middlecoff mailbag. At John Middlecoff is the Instagram handle. Slide in the DMs and I will answer your question. With Sirianni as the new head coach in Philly, everyone keeps bringing up that he wasn't the play caller. Well, Frank wasn't the play caller in Philly either before he became the Colts head coach. At one point, Andy Reid had never called plays. Not to say that's not who he'll be, but highly unlikely. How hard is it to call plays in a game? If a potential head coach hires, checks all the boxes, why why is never called plays before that important? Obviously, play calling is a huge part of winning games. But if you have a smart grinder who can lead, shouldn't you take the risk? It's a hell of a question. I think to really answer this question, I I don't know if I can because I've never called plays and I've never coached football. Now, I've spent a lot of time around coaches and I still text with a lot, guys that call plays now. Uh, they would, From my vantage point would be, I, I, I do think there is some instincts and innate ability to call plays on game day. Now, getting ready for a game, preparing a game plan, any offensive coordinator like Sariani or like Frank, even when they're not the play caller, is a huge part of the game plan and is a huge part of the conversations while the game is going on. So if they've seen success, as Sariani has with Frank and Phillip Rivers at a couple different spots, and as Frank did with Doug Peterson, and you're a quarterback at heart, like I, I do think there are some things that you could go, this guy's got a good chance. But there are guys that you go, this guy would be a good play caller, and then he's not. So, I, 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 to me, it's one of those things you never truly know until he gets to call the plays. I think in some ways, it's kind of like a player. Like, you go, oh, this can look good in practice. Oh, this will look good in the preseason games. What happens when it's nut-cutting time against a good defensive coordinator? A guy that has 20 years' experience on you as a, as a coordinator. What happens when you're going up against Fangio or Belichick? Like, it's tough. And I just think you naturally have to learn on the job, but I think you get a pretty good idea relatively quick. Now, depending on your talent, depending on your coaching ability, as I said earlier, I think the most important thing with him is not calling plays right off the bat. It's getting Carson confident again. And with that comes play calling. But to me, it's in the offseason, in training camp, they got to fix Carson. And with that, then I think he can learn to be a play caller but I, I don't know if you ever know. That's from my vantage point. I, I, I would guess there's some coaches listening that would probably answer it differently. Uh, that, that's a good question to ask when I get a coach on one time, maybe in the offseason. 
because that's that's a hell of a question. I've got a thought. Watson for Wentz. Could it happen? Uh, you know, assuming the financials, you can just trade them straight up. Yeah, I don't see why. I don't see why Houston would do that. If I was Houston, I would be more inclined to trade him to the Jets, trade him to the Dolphins, and start over than trade him for Carson Wentz, who's not playing well. Because they're not equals right now. One guy's really good. And one guy's a high-character guy, never causes an issue. The other guy is playing badly and leaking stuff to the media. So, to me, they're not they're not on the same wavelength. And you can say, well, Deshaun's leaked some trade. Yeah, he's just been unhappy with the shit show that's going on. Like, I think we all agree. Like, yeah, it's getting a little weird in Houston. Carson's like, wait, Carson doesn't like Doug Peterson? What? Doesn't everyone like Doug Peterson? Didn't he win a Super Bowl? So, I, I would say that the Eagles would do that yesterday. Howie would drive Carson to Houston. I don't see why the Houston Texans would do that. Good question, though. That's I like shit like that. Question for the pod. How prevalent is paying players in college football? Does it contribute to the recent lack of parity? If so, how do you address the problem? In my opinion, talent and coaching go further in contributing to recent dominance of Bama and Clemson. For example, Texas has talent and financial backing, but hasn't been able to compete with the top tier in part due to lack of player development. Would you be a proponent of college football implementing some sort of salary cap for Power 5 if player paying players is that big of an issue? Not exactly sure how it would be done, but think there are some parallels in the sense that a school would be signing a player to a three- or five-year deal. Uh, I think it's pretty prevalent. Uh, I think it's been going on well before I've been alive and it'll go on forever. I don't necessarily see it as a problem. Right, Paying anyone to do a service is not illegal. They are breaking no laws. They're breaking NCAA rules. They're not, they're not doing anything illegal. They're actually doing exactly what capitalism says to do. This guy's really talented. Give him some cash. Now, there are legalities. You know, you're supposed to pay taxes on those cash. But you're right. The, the reason a lot of teams lose every year in college football that are paying players. Remember Ole Miss got popped with Hugh Freeze for, well, they got popped because he was, uh, you know, he was sending, or I guess hanging out with the hookers. But their payroll was massive. Look at their squad. Tunzel, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf. They were stacked. That, that team was not cheap. They didn't win. So the SEC, I think, is much more like, do I think UCLA is paying a bunch of players? No. Do I think it's happening in the SEC? Yes. Do I think it happens at most of the top programs? Yes. Do I think it do I think it happens with I just hand you a bag of cash? No. I mean it's it's a little more complicated than that. Right? I, I can give you I can hire you to do a job, you know, and pay you a hundred dollars an hour or, you know, cash or whatever, right? I can tell you to go somewhere and there's money waiting for you. Uh and a lot of it is just to help people's family or whatever, right? As much as it is to like get the guy some shoes or food. They don't pay for food anyway. I think the problem is, and this is the NFL where actually it's under the bylaws where you can pay players, some coaches are just better than others. Nick Saban has nothing in common with the majority of coaches he plays every week. He's vastly superior. Same thing with Urban Meyer. Same thing with Lincoln Riley. Like the best coaches typically end up at the best programs and they got huge advantages. Now, I know my guys with Oklahoma that 
he's been on this podcast before, Drew Hill, and Bob Stoops was very, very adamant against cheating. Heard stories about just, like, it, it was very serious in that program. And I've heard Lincoln takes the same exact stance. So, like, is every program operating by the same rules? They're not. Some programs are going to push the envelope that er- that other programs will not. And, like, I don't necessarily think you need a salary cap. You just need, like, Texas had the chance to get Nick Saban. He said no. Texas tried to get Urban Meyer. He said no. They got Sark. Like, recruiting's never been an issue for Sark. So whether Texas ends up paying players or not, like, they're always getting talent. Can you coach and develop, like you said? Like, I don't think the money changes anything. A lot of programs get high-recruited high guys and don't win that many games, right? For every Alabama, there are a lot of... I mean, SC's been recruiting well for a long time now. What do they have to show for it? What do you think of the Seriani means for Deuce Staley? Do you think he stays if offered, or has he been passed up so many times where he'll want a chance elsewhere? Seems like he's not getting a lot of buzz despite all of his players loving him and the success for a coach and a player. Thanks. It's a great question. This is where, like, I, I can't speak for Eric Bieniemy. Uh, never been around him. I love Deuce Staley. And if a team hired Deuce Staley, I, I think he could win. Like, if you hired Dan Campbell as your head coach, you could hire Deuce Staley to lead your team. Now, I don't. does Deuce Staley want to become a head coach? I've never asked him. I'd imagine he does. It's a lot more money. But I think he gets paid a lot of money to be with the Eagles. Right? That's the thing. Know this. Here's the one thing I get a little uncomfortable with about the NFL. Like, it sucks Eric Bieniemy does not get a job. I'll be the first to, like, that sucks. He, It's crazy. He makes seven figures. But I don't know how much Deuce makes. I'd guess he makes a lot of cash. Like, so these guys are getting passed up. Sometimes in, in normal jobs, normal people jobs, like if you work in a sales job or whatever, you listen to this, you have a, you work, you know, normal times in an office where, where a step up and a big promotion is like thirty, forty thousand $40,000. These guys, and goes from making 80 grand to 110 grand. Like that's a big deal for society, right? Or go from 50 grand to 90 grand. Like that changes your life. These guys are already making, every coordinator in the league makes seven figures. Every defensive coordinator, I think the average two years ago was almost $2 million. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is, it's, it's first world problems that we're complaining about in the NFL with the coaching situation. Now, there is a big difference between making $1 million and five as a head coach. But making $1 million, like, last time I checked, you're in the 1% of the 1%. Life pretty good. Maybe not the 1% of the 1%. Maybe you're in the... I can't even figure that one out. That's I was going to screw up. Would you... What would it take for Aaron Rodgers to pass Tom Brady as the GOAT? I think if he won like three of the next five Super Bowls and ended with four and had just one of the greatest runs we'd ever seen in his late 30s and like one MVPs, even then, I mean, Tom's got six. How many MVPs does Tom have? Multiple. I mean, I just... I don't think he can, actually. He'd probably need to... He'd probably need to equal his Super Bowls. I mean, Aaron's lost in a lot of NFC Championship games. So Brady, yeah, he's won three MVPs. I think Rodgers is going to win his third. I mean, let me r- rattle off some accomplishments for TB12. Three-time Super Bowl, or six-time Super Bowl champion. Four-time Super Bowl MVP. Three-time NFL MVP. NFL Comeback Player of the Year, the year after he you know, tore his ACL. He's a five-time All-Pro, 14-time Pro Bowler, 
I mean, it's just, I don't think it's possible. But I, one thing I think Rodgers can do, he wins two in the next five years. All of a sudden, we talk about Aaron Rodgers like we do Elway, like we do Manning. Is he the second best quarterback of all time? Does he compete kind of with Montana in, the, in that conversation? I don't think that's inconceivable. I think it's impossible to pass Tom. Too good. As a Titans fan, I'm happy with the success we've had with Rabel becoming the head coach, but I'm curious to see how we do after losing Arthur Smith to the Falcons. Our offense bailed us out a lot of tight games last year, while our defense took a major step back. What do you think should be the Titans' top priority going into next year? Some of my thoughts are looking into the better pass rushers or finding another weapon in the passing game to make defenses more honest, possibly Zach Ertz. Yeah, when I think of the Titans, I just think they get no pass rush and they can't cover anybody. So they have A.J. Brown, who's a star. Derrick Henry under contract, who's a star. Johnny Smith is a good young player. Ryan Tannehill's really good. I think Corey Davis is a free agent, but you could draft a guy in the middle of the rounds. You need to draft and sign DBs and pass rushers. Now, granted, you look at the division, you go, well, Trevor Lawrence is coming in. Deshaun Watson may stay. He could get traded. And the Colts don't have a quarterback. I think the Titans are pretty well set up. They just they need to get another pass rusher, and they need to get some DBs. But to me, it's multiple pass rushers. You have a good pass rusher, DBs look better. I, I think if you can, I don't know who they could get. It's hard to get pass rushers because they don't really become available. And the guys that do are usually older. So what are they going to do? Draft some, you know, some star pass rusher in the 20s? That's pretty hard. There aren't, you know, for every TJ Watt that lands in the 20s, there's a lot of Marcus Smiths, right? So complicated situation. I, I just think you draft and sign defense. I think your offense is good enough. And, you know, whoever, it's hard. I mean, you lose LaFleur, then you go to Arthur Smith. To be honest, have they even named an offensive coordinator? That's going to be a tough job to take because Arthur was, Arthur was fantastic. Why do you think the Shanahan offense is becoming so popular in today's game? Is it simply that these wonder coaches, such as McVay, I can't even talk, and Shanahan came out of the same system and they just happen to be the best and the brightest? Or is there something about the system that makes them inherently productive? Maybe I've read this question a couple times sitting on my phone. I feel if I answered this last week, I apologize, but this is a good question. I think it has the best of both worlds. One, it has a running game that is very, very easy to find offensive linemen, because you just need to find athletic guys. I don't need guys to blow people off the line. And it's easy to find running backs, because I don't need a lot of lateral agility. I just need you to be able to get downhill. That's why when you think of the great zone running running backs, all those years with Shanahan in Denver, from Arian Foster to the guys in, uh, in Houston, to Alfred Morris in Washington, to what Gurley was doing, to, uh, to what Devontae Freeman did in Atlanta, to what all the guys with the Niners have been doing, to what Cam Akers looks to be doing and Aaron Jones and those guys with the Packers. It is a running scheme that is easy to operate with. And while it also has some soft, like I don't need my offensive lineman to be Anthony Munoz, I have a very physical running attack twofold. I use a fullback, so I have a lead blocker. And two, my running back is not a dancing player. You want a guy to put his foot in the ground and get vertical. It's why when Chip Kelly got to the job with Philly, he didn't really love Shady because he wanted a vertical running back. He wanted, uh, what's his name, DeMarco Murray. Is that his name, DeMarco Murray? 
Demarcus Murray? I can't even remember. He's the coach for the uh, Oklahoma Sooners right now. The old cowboy running back. I feel like I'm saying his name wrong. But it was a disaster, but that's the type of running back you want in the scheme. Raheem Mozart. You know, Tevin Coleman. Well, the guys are using L.A. right now. Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams look like stars. Now, they're good players. All these guys are good players, but it's easy to succeed. And then, because the running game is going to be successful if you have a guy implementing that knows what you're doing, do you know how easy it is to pass when you are gutting people? Oh, it, Tennessee does it too. So I'm just gutting you on the ground. Well, what happens? You start cheating. So it has like the the the... the the base of the offense is the run game, is outside and inside zone, but it's really outside zone, and it leads with a fullback, and I mean, I, I guess Tennessee doesn't really use a fullback, huh? but the Niners do, and it gives you the ability to bust it outside, and if it's not there, you can cut it back. So then you start cheating, and then I start playing cat and mouse game. Then I do play action, then I do boots, and I do rollouts, and you have no clue what's coming. And it's why when this offense works, and you've seen it with the Packers this year, and you've seen it with the Rams, you've seen it with the Niners, and you've seen it with the Titans, when the quarterback is just functioning, your defense is so off balance. I can run outside right or left, I can gut you up the middle, and I can throw to either way, right? Because I can get layup throws right and left, I can take deep shots off play action, and I get these just layup easy completions on these play action boots, where I just dump it off to the tight end and he's got 10 yards of grass to pick me up first downs. It really is an incredible offense. Now, you need the right personnel. I need athletic linemen and I need the right kind of running backs. I also need my wide receivers to block. If your wide receivers won't block, you have an issue. It's why Kyle Shanahan, he's big on like Debo Samuel, right? He wants George Kittle. Like he wants his skill guys to block. Look at Tennessee, A.J. Brown, Corey Davis. Those guys are bigger wide receivers. McVay's got, you know, his guys blocking. And then he uses the tight end. It's just, it's a fantastic offense. And those guys, all those guys, LaFleur, obviously Kyle, and McVay, they learn from the master of the offense in Papa Mike. So they learn from the guy. It's like, why did uh, Mike Shanahan, Mike Holmgren, and all these guys end up such good offensive coaches? I don't know. They learn from Bill Walsh. So when, when you have the opportunity to learn from the guy that originates the offense, you're going to be successful. Like, why do so many, like, why does Cliff Kingsbury, whether his defenses are good or not, like, he can throw up points. Why? He learned from Mike Leach. Who'd Lincoln Riley learn from? Mike Leach. Those guys understand the offense because they fucking learned it from Mike Leach. I think that's a big part, right? If you just learn your profession, whatever it may be, from the guy who's great at that profession, if, if you're not an idiot and you take de- decent notes and just listen, you got a chance. And I guess that's probably the best way I can describe it. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a great weekend. Adios. RIP Ted Thompson. I forgot to mention that. Super Bowl champ. Drafted Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I saw Aaron Rodgers had a good statement. He said he always ended his uh, his yearly talk with the team with a word and I, I like I love the word as well. Godspeed. Have a great week. R.I.P. Ted.
It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.